And I was thinking of this. If we can learn to walk in worthiness and in zeal when no other eyes see us but Jesus himself, then we will walk in worthiness and zeal when all other eyes are watching us. You know, if we can stand fast in Christ when we're by ourselves and we know the only eyes who can see us is Jesus, then we're going to have that worthiness. We're going to have that zeal when all other eyes are watching us. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. As you get settled, you can turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 31. The wonderful study we've been having through the book of Galatians, and it's going to get, I think, even better as we get into chapters 5 and 6. But there is so much that we can learn from chapter 4. In verse 16, it says, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. And so now he, he changes. He's talking directly to them uh, about how he's feeling. He says, first of all, if I become your enemy, because I tell you this truth, have I become the enemy, Paul is asking. It's a word in the Greek that means to hate as an enemy. And so there's this sense of, of hatred that goes along with this word to hate as an enemy, to no longer regard an individual as a brother, or to actually take him out of the community. You're not part of us anymore. Paul is saying, if I become your enemy, this is the guy who introduced the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But like most cults do, um, when there is a, a powerful work of the gospel going on in someone's life and a cult comes in and they try to take that person away or snatch them away, the one way that they are able to do that is by closing down relationships around that individual, especially relationships that can keep them in the truth of God's word. And so like the Jehovah's Witness, well, they'll shut down relationships in an individual's life that they're courting to become a witness like them. And they need to break ties with the non-believers. And and it seems so similar to here with the Judaizers. They were trying to shut down the relationship. Paul himself saying, if I become your enemy, that you would want to exclude me. And, and that word in the Greek for exclude means to remove someone from association. 
So very similar to that of being in an enemy, but to separate. You want to exclude me that you may be zealous for them. And then he goes to talk about what it means to be zealous. And Paul understood this greatly. Now, Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, he said in Matthew 23, 15, you travel land and sea to one, one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Now, that's a pretty bold and strong statement from our Lord. But this is what the Judaizers were doing. And Paul understood this type of zealousness because he used to be like them. He said in verse 18, it's good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I'm present with you. And, and, and there's two things that I see. Paul understood what it meant to be zealous. And he was zealous for Christ right now. But he also understood the Judaizers type of zealousy. Turn back to uh, chapter 1. And I'm going to read the verses out of order, but we're going to begin in verse 14. This is Paul's zealousy, where he said in verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. Now, what Paul did with that zealousy is found in verse 13. For you've heard my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measured and tried to destroy it. So Paul knew this type of zealousy because he had once lived that life and the Lord had redeemed him, had freed him from that. But he also knew what the churches in Galatia were getting themselves into because he knew that it was a dead end road. It was a road of works for salvation that could never bring peace. And they were going backwards and as we learned last week, they were actually putting themselves backwards into the bondage of the law when Christ had set them free from the law. To be zealous, it means to have a warm feeling for or against someone. And we think of this in our term of zealousy. We think of somebody that's just really fired up and, and going towards someone with strength and with zeal. And yet... There is this affection that in the Greek word that goes along with it, that you're zealous. It's good to have zealousy for a good thing. Always, he said. And not only when I'm present with you, that that's the other thing that this verse caused me to think about, because quite often we can have this type of zeal for Christ when we're hanging around other believers. That it reminds me of uh, being a father and now a grandfather, but having children and and they tend to, not always, but they tend to act better when you're around. But when you just leave them be to get into their own mischief sometimes, no telling what will take place. Because nobody's watching. This thought that nobody sees, nobody's watching. And I was thinking about Paul calling the church to once again be zealous for the good things of the Lord. And he always... He's saying, not while I'm just not while I'm with you, but also when I'm apart from you. And he had this cry to the church of Philippi in Philippians 1:27. He said, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So whether I'm with you or apart from you, just 
Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. I was thinking about this worthiness, this type of zeal in a good thing. And I was thinking of this. If we can learn to walk in worthiness and in zeal when no other eyes see us but Jesus himself, then we will walk in worthiness and zeal when all other eyes are watching us. You know, if we can stand fast in Christ when we're by ourselves and we know the only eyes who can see us is Jesus, then we're going to have that worthiness. We're going to have that zeal when all other eyes are watching us. And I think that's the type of believer that the Lord wants us to be. One that is true to his word, whether other people are watching or not, with the thought that God sees and God knows. In verse 19, he says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. And so Paul is just this fatherly, motherly concern coming forth in these verses. But he never used this phrase in any other of the epistles, my little children. He never wrote that to any. It wasn't a common thing like the beginning of all of Paul's epistle is grace and peace to you. He said it to everyone that he wrote to. He may have changed it up a little bit, but he always said grace and peace. And then he always closed with grace at the end of his epistles. Um, if not every time, but almost every time I had looked in that, that earlier this year, that he had put parentheses around his epistles, his letters with the grace of God. But he never said to any other church, my little children, not recorded, not written for us. And so this is a term of endearment that Paul gives. And he refers to the labor pains. He says, am I going to have to go through the labor pains all over again? Now, I don't know how good a guy can refer to labor pains. Uh, most women could probably say that he probably doesn't have a clue in what he's talking about. But Paul, in one of his epistles, refers to the burden of the church being upon him every day of his life, that he carries around with him the burden of the church. And I think Paul understood what it meant to be a father and what it meant to be a pastor to a flock of believers, that he carried them with him. He prayed for them. He always was looking for God to bless them and that they would be in safety. And now his, some of his children, the churches of Galatia, they're in this great danger. And he says, I'm going to have to go through the labor pains all over again. Again, I can't think of too many moms who would want to do it all over again for their children. But he's going through that birthing process. And now it's to cleanse them and to free them from the false teaching of the Judaizers and bring them back again into the truth of the gospel once more. In verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So it is written that Abraham had two sons. I find it interesting that Paul keeps going back to Abraham. And we have looked at this over the last few weeks, but by going back to Abraham, Abraham lived from uh, the Bible, from what I could just putting all the birth dates and numbers together, that he lived 625 years before the Ten Commandments were given. 
And so he's, he's taking them back to Abraham 600 plus years before the law even existed. And he's, he's bringing them back to the example of faith. But this time, he uses a different example. He uses Abraham's wives that he had. He initially had one wife. Her name was Sarah. And at the age of 75, the Lord called Abraham to go to a land, to a place that he did not know. And the Lord promised him in Genesis 12, 3, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. And so in that promise is a promise for a child. And yet Abraham and Sarah had no child. They would be in the land of promise, what we would know as Israel today, and just pilgrims there just roaming around for a period of 10 years when Sarah came to Abraham one day and, and she said, it's obvious I'm not going to have a baby. You know, at that point, she was 75 years old. I, I don't know. We have a few who have passed 75, but I, I really doubt too many ladies are thinking about having a baby at you know, 75 years old. It's like, I've done that. Um, We've had our kids. I enjoy the grandkids. So she came to Abraham. She said, take my handmaid, Hagar, and let her be your wife. It was kind of like a surrogate mother type thing to where she said, when she gives birth, she'll give birth to the baby on my lap or on my knees that she would receive the son as her own. And so Abraham, you know, you just wonder what went through his mind He's probably thinking, this is not going to be good. But she became pregnant. And when he was 86 years old, he had a son. His son's name was Ishmael. But Paul is referring to the two wives. See, one was a bondwoman, one was a free woman. And in that culture, in that society, a slave that would give birth to a son, that son would never be heir. He was always the son of the bondwoman, always the son of the free. And it was just a custom. It was the culture of their day. But when Hagar realized that she was pregnant, she began to act differently around her master, Sarah. And so Sarah chased her off at one point, and the Lord came to her in the wilderness as she was leaving and said, you need to go back, and you're going to have a son. I'm going to bless him. I've heard your cry. I've heard your prayer. It's where we get... One of the names from God from this story, from the story of Hagar as she cries out to the Lord during this time. But she was still a slave, and her son would be born of a slave woman. Now, as time went on, there was these promises that God made in, in Genesis 12.3. We've already mentioned that all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. But the Lord came to Abraham years later in Genesis 15, referring at that time to his servant who was over his house. The Lord said, this one shall not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him out and he said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And so that Just confirmation that the Lord said, I'm going to give you a son. And then years later, he came back and said, I'm still going to give you a son. In Genesis 17, the Lord appeared to Abraham once again. And now Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 89 years old. And Abraham's happy with Ishmael. And yet the Lord says, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter and That's what happened when 
Sarah was listening through the tent flap. I'm sure that it was pretty easy to do back in that day. Um, she cracked up laughing, thinking, here, I'm 89 years old. I'm not having no child. And, uh, and then she had the joy of laughter at 90, giving birth to a son, Isaac. And so God kept confirming his promise to him. And then at the age of 100 for Abraham, Sarah at 90, they had a son. His name was called Isaac, and he's the son of promise. He was birthed through a free woman, Sarah, not being a slave. He is the son of promise. And he says of these two in verse 24 through 27, which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not travail. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And so he's referring to the two wives of Abraham now. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at Abraham and his faith that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now Paul uses the example of his two wives, and he says one is Mount Sinai. The other, he doesn't tell us the mount that it's referred to. And so Mount Sinai is where the Ten Commandments were given. It's where Moses went to receive, and the children of Israel were in the wilderness at that time. They received the covenant of the Ten Commandments. But that the Ten Commandments brought bondage. It brought a burden upon them. And he said, not only was there two mountains, but two Jerusalems. And the Jerusalem, which is now, verse 25, her children is under bondage with her. But the other mount, he doesn't name the mountain, but it made me think of Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered up Isaac as his son and God spared him that day, but it is also the place where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That The second mount is that of the birth of the church through Jesus Christ giving his life upon the cross. He has, through faith, cleansed us from all of our sins. In Zechariah 8.3, it tells us, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. It is interesting that he had uh, quoted from Isaiah 54, 1 in verse 27 of our text. It comes from verse 1 of Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not travail, for the desolate has many children than she who has a husband. It's interesting that it says that in Isaiah 54, because we know in Isaiah 53, it depicts the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that Christ first needed to be crucified before true rejoicing could come. But once Christ died, there's the cry for the city to rejoice and for the barren to rejoice because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. The two Jerusalems, the one which is now 
was coinciding to the Jerusalem of Jesus's day, of Paul's day. We could even say of today that they're enslaved under the bondage of the old covenant, trying to obtain righteousness before God through the law, through their works. And I think we understand the old versus the new, that there are things that can hold us in bondage. But the Jerusalem from above, he said, it is free. And Christ has birthed us to a new citizenship. And right now we're in a faraway country. We're in the faraway land. We haven't yet come home, but our citizenship is in heaven to be with Christ forever. In Philippians 3.20, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed into his glorious body, according to the working which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. My question today to you is, which city do you belong to? The Jerusalem which is now one that is under bondage, or the Jerusalem that is free. Verse 28 and 29, it says, But we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. So Paul is just saying, hey, we're the children of promise. And those who are under that bondage, they're persecuting you. That's, that's how it was back in Isaac's day. Ishmael came and persecuted him. And it tells us that in Genesis chapter 21, when Isaac was weaned, that um, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing Isaac. And at that time, uh, she was driven out from Abraham and Isaac's sight as Ishmael would be driven away at that point. That word for scoffing means to, to laugh outright. He was just laughing and scorn, mockery given to him. And he says, what does scripture say? Verse 30, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And so Paul is teaching the churches in Galatia to cast aside the law. Now, we will look at our liberty that we have in Christ Jesus in chapter 5. And when I speak about casting aside the law, the Ten Commandments, as if we don't need to live by those rules any longer. It's really saying this, that you don't live by those rules to gain salvation. But the rules are good. God's law is good. And in chapter 5, we're going to have a key to how we can walk according to um, the laws of God. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. But here he's saying to the churches that, to cast it aside, the commandments are only going to enslave you again. They're going to bring you into bondage. And he also may be telling them to cast aside the Judaizers. Don't listen to their testimony anymore. Shut them down. Treat them as your enemy, but not me. And he closes in verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but free. We need to recognize that we are free today, children of promise, heirs of God and of Abraham's seed. That's what Paul has been teaching in this chapter to us. As Americans, we may feel like the Jews in Jesus' day when they said to Jesus, we have never been in bondage to any man. 
And yet Jesus came back and taught them that anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I think we understand what bondage means. We may have not been slaves in that sense, but to be in the bondage of sin, the good news is that Jesus has come to set us free. John 8.36 tells us, Therefore, if the Son of Man makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And perhaps there's a bondage that you have been dealing with that has enslaved you. And I believe today the Spirit of God is available to each of us to set us free. We know we're not living as Christ would have us to, and we got some things that the Lord has been working and dealing in our lives, and He wants to set us free today. He wants to cleanse us from these things. Christ wants to set you free. Father, I just pray that you would be with us now. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be in this house and that you'd work among us today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into his image by the power of his Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.